Hello and welcome back to the House Podcast, our innovative exploration of the humanities beyond the curriculum. I'm Zuzanna, again, one of your Demeter House Captains, and I'm here with Jess, and I'm one of the Hestia House Captains. Nice. In this episode, <laughs> we will be discussing uh, Jean-Paul Sartre's uh, play, No Exit, with some valuable insight into his existentialist theory, granted to us through the relatively short summary called Existentialism is a Humanism, unlike his novel, his Bible much, much book, longer. Being and Nothingness, <laughs> yes. which I don't think we're going to dare to even read in its entirety because it's long. <laughs> it's very long. It's very, very thick. But because the play is so short, we're going to take the courtesy of summarising it for you, yeah. perhaps that will encourage you to read it in the future as well. So we will spoil the whole thing. Um, but essentially, first off, we are introduced to Garçon, who is brought into a room by uh, the valet. And we don't really know who the valet is, and he doesn't have much relevance throughout the play in he's, general. He's there in the beginning, and then he kind of never shows up again. Yeah. He's, he just delivers them into He's hell. just there to sort of... Not even contextualise hell because he doesn't provide no, much context exactly. to it. Um, but then, after a short conversation between the two, I think Gosson asks if there's toothbrushes in hell. Yes. Which is and the valet's like, why would you care? You're not yeah, exactly. you a physical body anymore. And uh, we are introduced to our uh, two other main characters, yes. Inez and Estelle, are delivered into the room. And... The room has some interesting decor and it's Second Empire style. Second Empire, Second Empire style drawing room. Yeah. Really, it's quite, it's quite specific about the way it looks. Mm. And it's interesting because we don't really know what that looks like today, I think, Second Empire style, but it's kind of, it's sort of kitschy. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's quite a domesticated setting as well. I think you Very had some yeah. important points about the fact that it's a drawing room. Yeah, so I was, I, I, if you've ever read any like 20th century, 19th century novel, you'll probably hear like a drawing room referenced in some manner or estate or something like that. And so a drawing room typically is a place of discussion. And if you read No Exit, you'll see there's not really much stage direction going on. It is all just this ongoing conversation. And that is essentially their afterlife, is them constantly talking, yeah. interacting with each other. And it's through those interactions that we get into the real depths of hell, which is how our human interactions are, in a way, torture. Yeah, in a way, condemn us through judgment. But I think it is funny, just getting yes. to the end very quickly, um, how Garçon just, the very last line is, well, well, let's get on with it. Yes. The fact that the conversation never ends and that sort of reflected through the fact that they're forever in a drawing room. And it's interesting as well, because he kind of plays on, I suppose, Aristotelian concepts of tragedy, where you've got this like unity of time and place, and there is no sense of time that we get some reference to it, where like their memories start to, or like their memory, the memory of them on Earth starts to fade, but it's just ongoing. And it makes it quite claustrophobic, because there's just, there's no way out. Yeah. <laughs> stuck. I saw a BBC interpretation of No Exit as well. I only watched the first five minutes because it was black and white and dreary <laughs> and boring, obviously. Uh, but it's just a white room with white benches. It wasn't particularly a drawing room either, but no. just the fact that claustrophobic setting as well. There's also, um, at the start of your version, you had Imagine You're in a Room yes. with 
two people, two people you hate. hate. So <laughs> while you're listening to this podcast, you know, just manifest whoever that might be. Yeah, just imagine. And it's quite interesting as well, because I feel like for everyone reading it post-2020 lockdowns, <laughs> I feel like we can all draw parallels to our experience of lockdown and being stuck in this no one room. room. And that's why, because Sartre wrote the play in, I think he published it in 1943, but it wasn't performed until 1944 in Paris. And so, of course, for a lot of audiences at the time, when Paris had undergone Nazi occupation by the Germans, this kind of being stuck in a room, mm-hmm. we were not allowed out, you had to follow curfew. That's why it's a one-act play, because they had to make sure that people yeah, would be back to full curfew. And so I think there's a lot of parallels there between the claustrophobia of the setting and the kind of the claustrophobia of... Um, the time period and feeling stuck and repressed. Yeah. You also mentioned Aristotelian oh, yes. tragedy, but there is a sense of catharsis at the end. Definitely, definitely. But also not because it never ends. Exactly. So it's like you kind of feel like we, we, we have you're relieved that you can step out of it, unlike them. They that they're are stuck, stuck in the situation. Yes. Yeah. They're condemned to it forever. And so that is a kind of catharsis for the audience in the way that that's not us. Thank goodness. Yes. It might be. <laughs> it could be. But uh, drawing away from that brief uh, tangent, <laughs> next up, um, the trio have met and they begin to try to establish why they are in this room together. There's yeah. this sense that um, everything has been predestined. They all argue that, oh, everything is set out as it should be. They're there for a reason. Yeah. But I think as we... Uh, the reasons they first give us aren't that truthful. Yeah. They try to glamorise or they, they, give their, they give their self-image, not really what they actually did. And yeah. when we read Existentialism is a Humanism, we also started to see a parallel between our own perception of ourselves and our actual actions and what we really did because my mind's view of myself is going to be different to your mind's view of me because mm. you can only base your mind's view on my actions whereas mine can be based on what I could have done yeah whereas yours is what I did do yeah and in existentialism as a humanism there's a big sort of point that uh, Sartre makes that we don't regard people for their potential or what they could have done for example when we look at an artist we think oh they were ingenious. They were um, yeah. Like we look masterful. at Van Gogh's masterpieces yeah. based on the masterpieces he did make, not the ones and not he the didn't. ones that he could have exactly had um, he not come to his unfortunate end. But uh, yeah, that's quite interesting. They try to assert what has delivered them to hell, and they don't really get very far no. until they decide to be truthful with each other. Exactly. So originally, I think Garçon he talks about how he was. He essentially says he was horrible to his wife. He treated mm-hmm. her abominably. Um, so he was a bit of a womanizer. He would bring women home when he was drunk and his wife would kind of just, um, he describes it being like a martyr and how she would just take it kind of sitting down. And it's quite cruel in that way because he kind of blames um, circumstance rather than what he himself has done. Yeah. And so we later reveal that, um, it's later revealed that Garson was really a coward. He was a deserter. He tried to set up a pacifist newspaper. Yeah. Um, so originally he was from, I think, South America, Rio? Rio. Rio. Yeah, Rio. And he tries to travel to Mexico in order to kind of escape, I guess, conscription for the war. And eventually um, he describes much only play how he has like 12 bullet holes in his chest or something, something like that. And it's, noble death, like it's revealed that he was, he, was fired, he was killed by a firing squad for being a deserter. Yeah. But Estelle as well has no clue why she's no. Uh, we find out later. Ghastly mistake. Yeah. <laughs> we find out later that there possibly quite is a reason that she's mm. there. Um, she's very similar to Blanche 
uh, from Streetcar Street yes. for all of our English literature listeners. But um, essentially, in the end, it turns out that she has a husband that is about three times as old as her. Yeah, she marries him to escape poverty. Yeah. And then she runs off with another lover, so she commits Much, adultery. Yeah, someone her age. And she does that for five months, and she runs off to Switzerland because she's originally from Paris. Yeah, she's pregnant. Um, and she gives birth to a baby girl, and then uh, she, in fear, she ties a rock to the baby and, and throws it, it in into a lake. And it's practically never mentioned again but she runs off to Paris and there's Mm. no sort of uh condemnation or judgment that she receives from that the lover just sort of and he he actually he commits suicide he shoots himself on the head yeah and it's interesting because I think one of the I think issues with Estelle is the fact that she's so desperate for male attention and male validation yeah and so it's interesting how when she has this baby part of the reason I guess in a way maybe why she resents the baby is one she didn't want to have the child but also her, her, well, not her husband, but her lover is absolutely enthralled with the baby, mm. and so when she kills the baby, she's kind of she she doesn't want his she she doesn't want his attention to be divided. She wants him solely to herself, and that is so similar to Edith. From yes, our, for our listeners that are here from our first ever podcast on, on Stoner, Stoner. Uh, but it, there's that sense. A lot of the plays and books that we pick up are about motherhood. Definitely. And this strange con- convention of it. And also uh, Eva from uh, uh, We, we need, need to Talk About, about Kevin. Kevin. <laughs> but they both experience motherhood in different ways. And you might consider if the way that society has programmed them to believe that having a child is sort of their only salvation uh, and from being domesticated is if that, if they deserve to be judged in such a way, but she does end up in hell regardless. Yeah. As for Inez as well. Inez, Inez quite bluntly describes herself as, as a, a damned, damned bitch. <laughs> <laughs> so she's quite straightforward with why she's there. She's very much a sadist as well. Definitely, she's quite cruel. Yeah, um, she likes inflicting pain on other people and she even describes it herself as, I can't get on without making people suffer like a live coal. I live coal in others hearts when I'm alone I flicker out so we can see immediately why Inez is probably there but her full story is that she moved in with her um, cousin and essentially seduced his isn't I don't sure whether it's I think it's his wife and he she, like she seduces his wife and eventually um they don't they don't kill the um he gets cousin. run over by a tram yeah he gets hit by a tram and, and then, then she kind of manipulates her lover into thinking that they killed him and eventually her lover turns on the gas stove at night and kills them both and there's also this very weird phrase that she always my pet we've killed him my pet pet. (laughs) she always says that to Estelle it sounds quite predatory actually when I read it yeah because towards the end of the play there is there's a very strong sexual tension uh, yeah, between, between Garçon and Estelle. Estelle. And sort of Inez's third wheeling as well. It's like, I think that's the nice thing. You can't see this triangle between the characters. We each yeah. want something from the others, but each is judging the other. So Estelle wants desire, but Garçon can only desire her if he, she sees him as a hero. But mm-hmm. Inez is a big part of Inez's character is the fact that she's a lesbian. And of course, partly the reason why she might be damned is in this place set in the 1940s when... There was still great homophobia present in society and um, homosexuals were greatly discriminated and also punished. Probably. And so Estelle immediately rejects any sexual attention from Inez because she finds it repulsive. And it's quite frustrating because 
Inez, in a way, it's, it's sad for her because Estelle is like this object of desire for her and she can never truly have it. And I guess that's kind of Inez's damnation. But also there's a parallel to that on Earth in a way where I think lesbians at the time, they, would, they never would have been able to have what they truly wanted and have the same freedom as heterosexuals would have had with it. Yeah. In that sense, we can criticise Sartre. <laughs> yeah. But equally, she isn't a great person either. So no. it's not it's unsurprising that she has found herself in hell. Exactly. And she herself isn't surprised either. No, she she she's aware of that she's a sadist. She calls herself rotten to the core. Mm. Also, um, at a certain point, Garçon is so overwhelmed by this, he states that they should just keep silent. Yeah, he's like, right, everyone, shut so, up. Yeah. <laughs> And that doesn't last very long. No. Inez starts singing something, and Estelle was like, "Does anyone have a mirror? Oh, I need a mirror." That is such an interesting moment as well. Yeah, because there are the only objects in the drawing room is there's three sofas yeah. and this horrible, ugly bronze statue. Yeah, that no one likes. And there's a paper knife. Yes, which becomes important soon when we'll talk about sort of contingency and uh, existence before yeah. essence which is a main part of existentialism as well I'd say probably the phrase that defines it the most exactly that's what Sartre is known for is saying that existence yeah. precedes essence yeah which is an interesting point when it comes to maybe philosophy and ethics yes. a level applying it but we'll get to that soon um, in that sense there's no mirrors there and Estelle is quite She's concentrated on her self-image as well, I think. She describes, I think, early on in the play how if she can't see herself, she starts to doubt whether she's really and there. And she pats herself She does. back There's too. a quote of that. Let's find it. Cause it's a nice quote. Um, oh, this is it. Okay. Estelle says, When I can't see myself, I begin to wonder if I really and truly exist. I pat myself just to make sure, but it doesn't help much. I think you, you really see her vanity, especially. In Definitely. This. Um, when she comes in, there are three sofas and all of them are differently coloured. And There's she, one. She has to sit on the one which best complements her yeah. outfit. So she switches seats with Garçon. And it's just so hysterical that they found themselves in hell. She's obsessed about her lipstick. She's trying to put it on, like, with uh, the mirror that she can't find. And also that she's so focused on how she looks to other people, which I guess does reflect um, her need for validation. Yes. Yeah. Also, Especially from the male ga- gaze from as well, gaze, if we think about the lipstick that could represent sexuality, as it usually does. As it usually does, yes. Um, it's interesting as well, because she uses, eventually she uses Inez and like Inez's eyes as a mirror. Mm. And another part of the play is that they have no eyelids. They can't yes, sleep. They can't sleep. Um, the valet tells Garçon, actually Garçon notices himself that he can't blink. And there's this beautiful description about blinking. And it's blinking, we call it. It's like a small black shutter that clicks down and makes a break. Everything goes black, one's eyes are moistened. You can't imagine how restful, refreshing it is. 4,000 little rests per hour, 4,000 little respites. Just think. So that's the idea. I'm to live without eyelids. But it's interesting as well because not only can they not sleep, but they also can't cry. Mm -hmm. And that's frustrating for those characters because that prevents them having a purgation of emotion because you can't have that anguish yeah. and that realization um, of I guess I guess that that, that that purging of emotions of being so overwhelmed. There is no catharsis for them, exactly. even though there is for us when we read it. Yeah. But um, at the end as well, 
to, uh, to add to the hysterical fashion of the book, they <laughs> try to push themselves out of the room and it's quite an empty drop afterwards and it's just like them scuttling to see <laughs> which one stays. But they do decide to all stay yeah. and carry on with their eternal damnation. Yes. About the lipstick, though, we keep going on tangents, which is probably <laughs> okay. one of the podcast's uh, most famous quirks at this point. <laughs> but... Um, so there's a big point in existentialism is a humanism about how we are condemned by other people that we can't define ourselves unless yes. someone else claims that we are something. And this contributes a lot later on to how Garçon really doesn't want to be a coward, but can't. Um, he he talks about how he's at the mercy of the others. And yeah. so there's a, a there's a bit of an interplay between Garçon and Inez because he, Garnes can recognise his own cowardice within Inez, and so he has to, he decides eventually not to leave the room when he's given the opportunity to, because that would be a defeat in her eyes. And so, like you were saying, there's this kind of, there's, there's this confliction between how we see ourselves and how others see us, and there's a kind of a dependency, because he wants to be seen as a real man, he's very, he's demonstrates an insecurity in his masculinity, partially, I guess, because of his, like, deserter status. And so it's, it's quite frustrating for Garçon because in some ways you do have to have faith in yourself, but he's so dependent on the faith of others within him and their belief that he's not a coward. At the end of the day, when you do depart from this world, yeah. the opinions of others and the works that you've produced are the only things that your legacy sort of goes on. Exactly. So when he talks about um, being shot those 12 or 6 times or whatever yeah. it was, there's not much of a, if you think about it, this Greek sort of glory that you get from death this great moment but it is just simply what you've left behind and there's this pragmatic um view of what you have done that you have to produce something you have to have a project as um Sartre calls it to evidence that you are the person that you are and not through what is actually inside of you because if you are anything it's the actions that you commit and what you leave behind exactly he talks about how like a man like a man's life is the sum of his actions and how yeah. that's what we have to base ourselves on and for Garton that causes a lot of anxiety because he talks about how he spent 30 years of his life believing he was a hero and then he died in not really a heroic way and that kind of shatters his self-image and that, that I feel like that's probably I think Particularly Garson, he's the most introspective out of the three of them, and he's constantly battling with himself and trying to figure out who he was. And in some, that in some ways, I guess that's how he tortures himself because he lived a life as a lie. And there's this really nice thing that Sartre talks about in existentialism is a humanism, where he talks about uh, essentially. Uh, so Sartre writes that dreams, expectations, and hopes serve to define a man only as deceptive dreams, abortive hopes, expectations unfulfilled. That is to say, they define him negatively not positively. And so Garçon's constant hoping of being a hero in many ways sets him up to be disappointed with himself because when he conceives himself as a hero, he allows himself to behave in ways that aren't heroic. And it's interesting as well because that kind of links to other groups across um, time. And perhaps I think like if you think about religious cults where they would feel that if they behaved sinfully, that showed purity of mind because they're getting out of their body and things like that. And I feel like sometimes our own image of ourselves allows us to fall short of them because we think well I think of myself this way so if I just do this one thing it's okay. Mm. One question that really comes up and so Garçon writes the pacifist newspaper that you were talking about and that is why uh, he doesn't go to war yeah because he 
well, he's brave enough to stand by his principles. I suppose mm. the way that he does that by fleeing does suggest cowardice. But there's a big question of, by standing by your principles, are you a coward? Which I think, yeah, I see what you mean, isn't a definite question. But I think while listening to this, you can consider that yourself. Because in some ways, an act of courage could be to accept that perhaps you're wrong or to accept that your preconception of something can change or develop. I, I think there's bravery in change. And I think that's one of the things Sartre talks about a lot in his essentialism and his humanism is that we're not, oh, as humans, we're constantly in a state of flux. We're never stuck at one point and you can change stuff. You can become a hero. You can become yeah. a coward and vice versa. And that's quite inspiring. And I feel like it takes bravery in yourself to, to accept that and not to allow yourself to be like, stagnant. Yeah. And I think a big part of that as well is how Sartre believes that you can't necessarily define if we have lived up to our essence or our telos the sort of end that or purpose that we're meant to come through to because um, with existentialism it's existence before essence and as we're born there's no expectation placed on us free for example human nature which Sartre decides does not exist we're only united really by this universal human condition yeah and into subjectivity uh, but there's not this sort of, as you can look at a paper knife, which he describes, and you can say it's fulfilling its purpose well, or it isn't by how much, how well it cuts something. Yes, exactly. You can't describe that, um, describe a human to that same way, because we are, as with the intersubjectivity, our own perceptions of your ability to excel at that are it's a spectrum we, we wouldn't all agree yeah we can't we can't measure there's no scale for how courageous were you today <laughs> yeah exactly and so in that sense you can always change from what you've become but it's as long as your actions your actions do define you it's as long as you um act on it you're not always a coward you you can't define yourself as that um because you always have the possibility of changing and i exactly. think there's the concept that sartre brings up which is bad faith Yes, and it's it's very applicable to Estelle and also Garcon Michael like yeah, and it's essentially that when you define yourself as something, for example, as a coward, it's quite strange. I can't say if I agree with it or not. Yeah, but it's if you define yourself as a coward, then you're falling short of yourself because you're you're demeaning yourself to one feature. But if you also don't and you deny that you are a coward, if your actions show that, then you're also acting in bad faith or believing in yourself in bad faith because it's not true to what you are. So in that sense, I think it's quite oxymoronic or paradoxical. It's something that I don't know if I agree with, but maybe... I I would definitely agree it's oxymoronic because there's kind of the sense that if I define myself, I fail in one aspect, but if I don't define myself, I'm... In another aspect, but I feel like maybe maybe starts just suggesting that we need to be constantly open to the fact that we are constantly in flux and that we're always yeah. changing, and so I think we need to be open to the fact that we're a multitude, uh, we're multifaceted, we're never just we can't put labels on ourselves really. Yeah, and this also feeds into the fact that um, one big quote that I think we should focus yes. on <laughs> is at the end, uh, hell is other people, and I think the the whole theme of it is that we can't condemn ourselves other people condemn us from how we view us. And it's very much deviating from a traditional, maybe Christian or theistic perspective. That if you commit a certain sin, yeah, and it's internal. 
and it's something that you do or something that you believe in. But hell is other people is quite a discussed quote and it's it's mentioned a lot. For example, in We Need to Talk About Kevin, it's mentioned yes. briefly. No exit is mentioned briefly. I believe it's mentioned in American Psycho as well, but don't quote me <laughs> on that. I, I don't know if I can recommend that book, to be fair. And so would you... I think I think the hell is other people statement has a lot of... it. It's, it's certainly found in our pop culture today. You know, it's a phrase you commonly hear. And it's interesting how, but in, in No Exit, it takes on a different meaning. It doesn't take on the meaning as in like, oh, people are frustrating. It takes yeah. on the meaning as in other people are our judges and they are, they're, we, they hold us to account. And the fact that we can never really escape. I think that's the thing that's the, the hellish part of it is that it's inescapable and that others' yeah. perception of us is inescapable. Because unless you go off to a distant island, you're always going to have an interaction with someone, an interaction that is going to... They're going to receive positively or negatively yeah. or however they receive it. So don't be scared when you talk to anyone, but consider that. Um. Yeah, I think it's... I guess it's kind of a, a bit of a moral message, I guess, in a way, to the audience that you, you always need to be aware of how you're, um, you influence others. And I think that's one of the things the play explores a bit, is that we can be other people's villains, we can be other people's heroes, and so, for example, for Estelle, I suppose, whereas this baby girl, for her, was like the villain of her story because it condemned her to motherhood and it essentially was proof of her adultery to um, her lover, it was a sign of her love for him. And for him, it was much more beautiful. And so it's interesting how our perception can vary person to person. Mm. There's an interesting quote as well that Sartre delivers himself. Sartre has to uh, defend existentialism yes. <laughs> quite a lot, which is the main theme of existentialism is a humanism because it isn't necessarily a book per se. It's a lecture that he's edited yes. that he held in response to Marxists and Christians sort of acting out against his ex existentialism and existentialism being quite an insult. Yeah, so in France at the time, people would say if they did something vulgar, they'd say, oh, I'm turning into an existentialist. Yeah. Today, I feel like we often conceive existentialism as something much louder, but actually, Sartre talks about how existentialism is a freeing philosophy because it says that I'm free to change and that I have free choice over my actions and I can define um, who I want to be through my actions. Equally, though, I think a big reason why uh, Sartre got so much flack for existentialism <laughs> is because of the Christian background of France at the time. Yes. Um, the absence of God is very much a key aspect of existentialism as well. And because there is no predestination in Sartre's mind, as you might think of Calvinism or anything like that, um, we are condemned to free will. So our, it's quite scary of thinking about it, yeah. but it's it's sort of stepping away from the almost comforting belief that whatever we do is predetermined. Exactly, and it takes on a, a, yeah, a slightly frightening belief in the way that I mean, we are ultimately morally responsible for everything we do. We can't blame it on, oh, this is God's plan exactly. <laughs> set out for me. We have to take on that responsibility, and so it's freeing, but it's also condemning. Yeah. The quote, however, is, so, hell is other people has always been misunderstood. It has been thought that what I meant by that was that our relations with other people are always poisoned, that they are invariable hellish relations. But what I really mean is something totally different. I mean that if relations with someone else are twisted, vitiated, then that other person can only be hell. Why? Because when we think about ourselves, when we try to know ourselves, we use the knowledge of us 
which other people already have. We judge ourselves with the means other people have and have given us for judging ourselves. I think that's a very big point in No Exit and it's quite a misconception that I think is important to bring up about the quote of Hell is Other People, which appears later on in the play. Anything else we want to talk about? I feel we can talk about the paper knife. I would like to talk about the paper knife. And so the paper knife is something that pops up at the end of the play where essentially they've all gotten quite mad at each other and frustrated. They've laid all bare and they now know each other and what they've done. And I think for uh, some of the characters that damnation from each other becomes overwhelming. And so they one of them picks up a paper knife and starts... So Estelle picks up a paper knife and starts stabbing Inez with it. Inez quite quickly responds to her, I'm already dead, you can't hurt me, you can't kill me. And so the paper knife is quite a poignant image because it's mentioned in existentialism, <laughs> in humanism. And so essentially he talks about how um, you have, there's a difference between objects, inanimate objects, like the paper knife and humans. And so an object, like inanimate object is an object in itself, so it has a function. And so its production precedes its um, existence in a way because yeah. you have to conceive of the idea and what it's going to do before it actually physically exists. Whereas for humans, our existence precedes our essence because we're an object for itself. We make decisions to define ourselves rather than making, carrying out actions because of what we're supposed to do. Yeah. So whereas a knife cuts because that's its function, we cut something with a knife because that's what we're wanting to do and we're yeah. defining an action and through that. And there's that free will yes. that we allow ourselves to develop what our purpose is. And I think it's interesting to look upon maybe perhaps the philosophy and ethics a level as we mentioned <laughs> earlier but the first thing that we learn about is natural law and it's essentially uh, thomas aquinas develops this but it's based upon the synderesis rule which is that our purpose is to do good and avoid evil in order to ultimately reunite with god in heaven and a lot of the primary precepts are, for example, um, to protect society, have an ordered society, um, things like that. And then there's secondary precepts as well. But I think a, a main point that you could bring up, possibly, if you're arguing against natural law, is that existence precedes essence. So we're not born with the synderesis rule and we're not born to do good and avoid evil that's something that we develop through our own morality and one thing that sartre mentions in existentialism is a humanism is that you'll never do something that you think is immoral and every time you make a decision you place value on that decision for the whole of humanity not just for yourself and it's interesting because it's sort of it's similar to Kant's universal law theory that you should act as if it were a law for everyone, although um, Sartre very much doesn't believe in the categorical imperative. So that's a difference between Kant and Sartre in the sense that there isn't set morals that we are all like set to believe in and set to do, but it's something that we develop over time and it's something that we place value on for all of society. It's like, yeah, it's some this kind of human consensus of what we should and shouldn't do. Mm. And that's kind of, again, places a lot of responsibility on us in ourselves because at the end of the day, um, we have to pass on those values to the future generations. And so not only are we deciding what we think is valuable, we're deciding what the future will think is valuable too. So after a further discussion, we've decided that I think we've 
gathered all of our thoughts on no exit and probably existentialism as a humanism. So is there, to conclude this episode, is there a single word or a phrase that you would use to define no exit? Freedom. Ah, interesting. Mm. Okay, my one would be, I suppose, hysterically tragic. Yes. (laughs) Yes. I think there's a kind of beauty in, I think, um, no exit where it's got the material for a tragedy in terms of all the, their backstories, but it's, it's, quite, it's quite hilarious. It's quite hilarious because there's also a funny conception of religion as well. Definitely. I think that's an important he makes a He makes a mockery of the fact that there's no one of these torture instruments and that we are each other's torturers. Yeah, that there's no red hot pincers or instruments of torture and that we are um, each other's hell. Hell is, in fact, other people. Yes.